Listen to the word of God, if you would, that I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, and my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Well, I am super thrilled to be able to bring this message to you guys tonight. Three years ago, when I was on my summer study break, I felt like God wanted me to memorize some scripture, and uh, he impressed upon my heart to memorize this very passage which contains the body of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And so I did. Unfortunately, my memory is not what it used to be, and uh, I need periodic refreshers to keep things etched in my mind, probably like some of you. And uh, so studying this passage this week for the message tonight prompted me to, to review it and to do just that. And this is just so good. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. If you haven't pulled your study guide out, go ahead and do that. And if you have a Bible or an app on your device, go to Acts 2. That's where we're going to be. It was so much scripture, we couldn't print it all out for you on your outline. So I would encourage you to to, uh, go to the scripture so you can track with me, okay? 
it would be hard, it would really be hard to overstate the importance of this sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. As we just read, the outcome was the conversion and the baptism of 3,000 people and the birth of the very first Christian church right there in that city, the city of Jerusalem. This sermon preached by Peter would lay the foundation upon which the whole Christian movement would be built, leading down to this very day. It also formed the pattern for the preaching of the apostles from that point on. We'll see the themes in, these service, uh, in this sermon appear again and again and again in the book of Acts. For sure, it's a gospel-centered sermon, focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? And also on the implications for people's lives. What I'm saying is that Peter's sermon here was hugely significant. We'll all benefit tonight, I believe, from peering into it and, and seeking to really understand it. Now, some of you like outlines, and so Peter's sermon could be broken down like this. First, there's an introduction. That's what we covered two weeks ago, where Peter basically explained what was going on there on that day of Pentecost. You remember this? The sound of a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire appearing on the, the heads or over the heads of each disciple there in that room, 120 of them. Peter's saying, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was prophesied in the Old Testament book of Joel. This is what's happening. God's doing it. He's ushering in a brand new era, the messianic age, the last days. That was really the introduction to his sermon. Tonight we're going to be looking at the main theme of the sermon, which is exalting Jesus. And at the end, as we saw, there's a challenge to respond, where Peter exhorts repentance and he extends grace. Now I want us to understand that in this sermon, basically, Peter is building a case, like a skilled attorney, okay? He's building a case, and it's a two-sided case, this former fisher of fish, now fisher of men, this former coward, now spirit-filled preacher, is presenting his argument that one, the Jewish people's Messiah that they'd longed for for centuries had come, and his name was Jesus. And two, he's going to uh, say this, that calling for the execution of that man, Jesus, these people were actually guilty of murdering Messiah. An unthinkable, unimaginable crime. You were so blind, he's saying in effect, you should have known who Jesus was. God provided plenty of evidence to clue you in. Now, understand that in that crowd there, thousands and thousands of people, maybe upwards of 10,000 people, Included in that crowd were the very same people who just a month and a half earlier had called for the execution of Jesus, right? These were some of the same people who had said, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children. Release Barabbas, but crucify this blasphemer, Jesus of Nazareth. Some of the same people who were in that boisterous crowd were in this crowd on this day when Peter was preaching. 
But I'm glad to know that Peter is not going to leave them condemned and without hope. This is a gospel sermon. That means there's good news. But he, he does want them to feel the gravity, the weight of their rejection of God's Messiah. And so he presents a case, an airtight case for Jesus of Nazareth being the Christ. And his argument has a flow to it. It's got a logical flow. It's got a chronological flow. And here's how he framed it. It's basically got four, four lines of argument, four points. First, Jesus' miracles showed that he was God's Messiah. Then Jesus' death further revealed that he was God's Messiah. Then Jesus' resurrection proved that he was God's Messiah. And then Jesus' ascension and his exaltation irrefutably demonstrated that he was indeed God's promised Messiah. Do you see this? See how these points kind of build on each other? And Peter is in essence saying to this crowd, you should have seen this. It was right in front of your face. Unlike other generations, you had firsthand exposure to this man. He lived among you. Who he was, who he really was, should have been obvious to you. Let's explore his reasoning here, okay? These four evidences that Jesus was the Messiah. First, his miracles. His miracles demonstrated, showed that he was indeed the Messiah. Peter said in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. As you yourselves know. They should have known Jesus' identity by his miracles. Some of them were performed right in front of them. Others of his miracles they had no doubt heard about. I mean, it was the miracles of Jesus Christ that drew the crowds to him, right? Turning water into wine at the wedding. Healing that invalid who had been laying beside that pool for 38 years. Giving sight to a man born blind. Taking one little kid's lunch and multiplying it into a huge buffet to feed thousands and thousands of people. Raising Lazarus from the dead. How about when Jesus walked on water that one night out on the lake? Do you think the disciples posted that on Facebook after that happened? and Publicized it? Especially after Jesus invited Peter to follow suit and do the same thing? Oh, I'll bet they did, whatever the equivalent was of Facebook in those days. These were all miraculous signs. What do signs do? They point to something. These signs pointed to Jesus as being God's Messiah from God. Those Jewish people should have come to the same conclusion that Nicodemus came to. Do you remember what he said when he came at night? Under the cover of darkness to visit Jesus? He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. The Jewish people were obsessed with signs, with miraculous signs, and, and God actually, in his grace, accommodated them. Truth be told, they did marvel at Jesus' works. They were impressed. They were amazed by Jesus' works, but it was his words that they just couldn't stomach and ended up souring them on him, right? And they ended up turning away. So on this 
very important day, Peter looks at those same people and in essence he says, you should have known. The signs and the wonders that Jesus did in your presence were proof of who he was, proof of his identity. Now I imagine the crowd at that moment was getting quiet, don't you think? I think it was dawning on them that Peter was putting them on trial here for the murder of Messiah. And he was just getting started and they were probably squirming already. Then he turned the heat up even more. And he said, you know what? The death of Jesus of Nazareth further revealed that he was God's Messiah. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you, like you people, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, not only had the Jews missed the significance of Jesus' miracles, that was evidence enough, but when their, their disenchantment with, with Jesus consumed them completely, when their agitation with him reached a fever pitch, they'd called for his execution, right, as a blasphemer. This man claims to be God. Perhaps they thought if this man, this distressing man, could be killed, that would verify their belief that he wasn't the Messiah. After all, surely God's great Messiah can't die. But looking back now, these folks weren't feeling quite so smug about their reasoning. Peter seemed to be implying that Jesus' death actually validated his identity as their Messiah. But how so? How did Jesus' death reveal that? So let me ask you this question tonight. Who killed Jesus Christ? Who's responsible for the execution of Jesus of Nazareth? You ever thought about that? Who was responsible for Christ dying? Well, some people might answer, well, it was the Romans. The Romans killed Jesus. It was the Roman governor Pilate who ordered, right, that Jesus be put to death. It was Roman soldiers who drove the nails through his hands and through his feet. Crucifixion was a Roman form of execution. The Romans did it, and certainly in the technical sense, that would be true, right? The Romans killed Jesus. Others would say, well, though, but it was the Jews, and that's what Peter says here. The Jews were the ones who had gotten all upset with Jesus for attacking their their religion, their legalistic religion. They were the ones who went berserk when he claimed to be God and used God's name for himself, I am, and they were the ones who charged Jesus with with blasphemy, and that was a crime punishable by death in their law. So the Jews were responsible, many would say, and certainly that is true as well, and Peter underscores that fact in his sermon. Some perceptive people might say, well, yeah, it was the Romans and it was the Jews, but honestly, it was also all of us. All of us human beings are responsible for the death of Jesus. After all, doesn't the Bible tell us Jesus died for our sins? That he died in our place? That he died as our substitute? The old song says it was our sins that nailed him there. The hammer is in our hands. No, we weren't there physically pounding the nails into his hands and feet, but it was our sins that necessitated his substitution. His sacrifice for us, right? And so, yes, in this sense, this is true. 
But you could also say that God the Father was responsible for the death of Jesus. Yeah, does that shock you? That this was all part of God's plan for the Messiah? That God ordained this to happen? Peter said that he was delivered over to you by God's set purpose. Literally by God's predetermined plan. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world? Yes. Now, God used human instruments to carry out his plan, but but his eternal plan had always called for the Messiah to die, to shed his innocent blood, to atone for the sins of humanity. And so for that, I am grateful, aren't you? That God had planned this out. And and it's Jesus' death on the cross and his shed blood that that enables God to forgive sinful people and still be holy and just. Because he can say, sin has been sufficiently punished in the body of my own son. So this now is the ultimate reality behind the death of Messiah. God ordained it to happen. That's what Peter says in verse 23. Now let me ask, did did that let the Jewish people off the hook? No, not in Peter's mind. He said, you are culpable. You, with the help of wicked men, put Messiah to death. Far from disqualifying Jesus as Messiah, his death at the hands of wicked men only served to further validate his claim that he was indeed the Messiah. No doubt you notice that there in verse 23, you see divine sovereignty placed right alongside human choice and responsibility, don't you? Delivered to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, but you put him to death. Right side by side there. Scripture often does that with no sense of needing to explain or resolve this tension between the two. I think about how in that upper room that night, Jesus had done the same thing on Passover night. Remember this? Speaking about Judas. Jesus said, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is here with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see it? God ordained. Judas was responsible. These statements come to us in the scriptures again and again with no squeamishness, no hand-wringing over this strange juxtaposition, no attempt made to try and reconcile two seemingly contradictory concepts, sovereignty of God, Human responsibility, free choice. And people ask, how can we reconcile these two? And the answer is, you don't. I agree with John MacArthur who says, you don't. You just hold those two things in tension in your heart and in your mind. We can't resolve them in this life. We don't try to find some kind of resolution by diminishing or denying either of those two concepts. For lessening them, we simply accept that our puny little minds are not suited to fully comprehend such eternal truths. One day we'll understand, but not in this life, right? But let's not miss Peter's main point here, which is this. The fact that Jesus died did not disprove his messiahship, did not disqualify Jesus from being Messiah. No, it actually validated it, as I said. Messiah had to die. 
to fulfill the purpose of God. Jesus' death was just more evidence that he was indeed the one who had been prophesied about in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12. Those spoke of a Messiah who would be what? Pierced for our transgressions. They spoke of a Messiah who would be crushed, slaughtered like a lamb, like a sacrificial lamb in accordance with the plan of God, to atone for our sins. So Peter here was making it plain that if his listeners didn't see that truth then, they should certainly see it now. Jesus, the crucified, slain Lamb of God, was their Messiah. And his death validated it. But his case grows exponentially stronger when you take the fact of his death and combine it with the next piece of evidence, his resurrection. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. I just love how Peter puts this in verse 23 and following. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What are the next two words? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was what? Impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now you got to remember, where was Peter preaching? Where was he? In the city of? What was it? Jerusalem. Where had Jesus been crucified a month and a half earlier? Jerusalem. And so if the people there wanted to refute this outrageous statement that God had raised Jesus from the dead... All they needed to do was what? Go over to the tomb, extract the rotting, dead body of Jesus, put it on a cart, wheel that cart over to this house, stop it right there in front of Peter, and say, case dismissed. (laughs) Case against us, dismissed. Peter, what do you mean God authenticated Jesus' identity by raising him from the dead? Here's his body. He's very much dead. So is your indictment of us. That would have been so easy if Jesus' body had been in that tomb. But it wasn't. And they knew it. And there was nothing they could say. And then Peter told them why Jesus' tomb was empty, and he uses a mixed metaphor. And so if you're an English teacher, don't get upset when your students used mixed metaphors because Peter used one here. It's very sweet. He said, God freed him from the agony of death. Do you see that? Literally, that could be translated, freeing him from the birth pangs of death. That sounds weird. Freeing him from the birth pangs of death? What does that mean? Birth pangs, it's the picture of a pregnant woman woman having contractions. I know nothing about that, but my wife regularly reminds me that she went through that three times. A woman in that state, more than ready to push that baby out. (laughs) One man described the analogy this way, listen. The grave could no more keep Jesus in its belly than a woman in labor can keep her baby inside of her belly. 
the womb cannot hold and contain the life that is within as the womb cannot hold and contain the life that is within it so the tomb could not contain and hold down the life that was within it it had to come out peter is declaring it was impossible for death to keep its hold on jesus he had to break free he had to burst out the reason jesus is life what did he say I am the way the truth and the life (laughs) John said in him was life that organic life force within Jesus was irrepressible the grave was not strong enough to contain him or hold him back that was impossible and now I feel like we're at Easter already But it's coming, right? We're not far from Easter. It's uh, kind of sneaking up on us here in just a few weeks. And as you heard uh, Pastor Jay say, our theme this year for Easter is Jesus the chain breaker. And that speaks of this very thing, Jesus snapping the chains of death, bursting forth out of that grave, pulsating with life, And it speaks of how he wants to do that for people as well. The resurrected king is resurrecting me, as we just said, making dead people alive. So I want to echo what Pastor Jay said. Please invite somebody to come and hear that message on Easter. They might not come any other time of the year, but they're likely to say yes if you invite them to come on Easter. Put a yard sign out in your yard like I have in my yard so that your neighbors can see that uh, there's a place to go where they can hear about the risen Christ. Oh, and I would like to have a massive Easter choir this Easter, okay? So if you can halfway sing and you're a ministry partner of New Life, join the choir, okay? Just let us know. Write a little note on your card, on your registration card there, Easter choir, and we'll uh, let you know what's involved in being a part of that. I'd love to have a choir of 40, 50 people on Easter weekend here at New Life. All right, back to Peter's sermon. He wanted to connect the dots for the crowd that he was speaking to. He went to great pains to do that. If someone still had any skepticism about Jesus being Messiah, Peter aimed to to do away with it. He knew his audience well, and so as he had done earlier, he, um, he appeals to their heritage, their roots, their religious background, their own scriptures, the Old Testament. He appealed to fulfilled prophecy. Did you catch this when I read the scripture? In verse 25, he begins to quote from Psalm 16, one of David's, King David's many psalms. And as Peter quotes it, he interprets it as a messianic psalm, meaning that he believed that David was was writing not about himself, but about that descendant of his that God had promised him, a future son of David who would one day sit on his throne and reign forever. We call that the Davidic covenant. The specific quote from Psalm 16 that refers to resurrection is found in verse 27 here of Acts 2. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You see that? In the following verses, Peter explains, King David, when he wrote that, could not have been talking about himself. 
because, he said, we all know that David died and his tomb is right over there. It was there in Jerusalem. It had a marble, uh, like a headstone to it. And he said, David died. He's over there. If you want to go check that out, you want to find his remains, which are probably decayed by now. Understand, David was writing not about himself, but he was writing prophetically about that promised descendant who he he refers to as the Holy One. The Holy One. Did you know that that was a title often applied to Jesus Christ? His disciples called him the Holy One. You know who else did? Demons. Go away from us, Jesus. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One. Heaven knows who He is. Hell knew who Jesus was. It was just these Jewish people who didn't understand who Jesus was. David was writing about Jesus a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. By the way, this tells us, Peter is giving us a lens for interpreting the Old Testament. Did you see that? Of course, he had been tutored by Jesus in this. He had heard Jesus tell the Pharisees once, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament points to Jesus. That's the interpretive lens to understanding the Old Testament correctly through its many figures and types and foreshadowings as well as some very direct references. The Old Testament points to Jesus. We need to remember that. Now, he's not in every single verse, but read correctly, the Old Testament storyline of Israel's history anticipates a day when the promised Messiah would finally come and usher in A new age, the age of Messiah, the last days, the messianic age, along with his kingship and all those types and figures would be fulfilled in him. So Peter quotes David's psalm and he interprets it through this lens, verse 31. Seeing what was ahead, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He wasn't talking about himself. David's dead, he's over there in the tomb. He was speaking of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, that his body would not see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of that fact. This Jesus is the Messiah, is his message. By virtue of his resurrection, foretold back in the Old Testament, And, Peter said, if any of you have any doubts that Jesus really did rise from the dead, remember, this was all fresh. This has all just happened. If you have any doubts, he was saying, you're looking at people standing up here, me and these standing with me, who can verify it. We are witnesses of the risen Jesus. Verse 32, God made good on his promise to raise Messiah from the grave, and after he did, Peter says, we saw him. He died, but we saw him walking around. We ate with him. We talked with him. We had conversations. We touched him. One morning, he cooked us breakfast, and it was good. (laughs) Jesus actually appeared to over 500 people on one occasion, and it's almost like Peter could have said, go ask him. 
Were you one of those that Jesus appeared to? Did you see him? It is undeniable, Peter was saying. Yes, you are guilty of killing God's Messiah. But know that God raised him from the dead as he said that he would. And we apostles are witnesses that Jesus is alive. Surely the people gathered there had heard the rumors, don't you think? Those unnerving claims that people were making of having seen Jesus alive and walking around. Now here's Peter confirming it and holding them accountable for connecting the dots since it was in their scriptures. And I wonder if it struck fear in their hearts. Think about it now. If you were one of the people in the crowd, we killed Messiah and he's alive. That does not bode well for us. We were against him. Evidently, God is for him since he raised him from the dead. Certainly, surely, he's going to judge us severely for murdering him. And maybe some of them wondered, you know, if he really did rise, where is he? Where where is he now? And Peter seems to anticipate that, and he finishes out his case by adding a fourth and final proof of Jesus' messiahship. Number four, his ascension and his exaltation. I don't think this calmed their fears that much, but it did answer their possible question of where Jesus was now. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he, that's Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all the All of this commotion that that stirred this whole thing up in the first place. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there goes Peter again, quoting the Old Testament. And again, applying it to Jesus, including this title of Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. This became a creed in the early Christian church, maybe the very first creed. Jesus is Lord. Would you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. That was one way that you knew you were talking to another Christian, kind of like a code phrase. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. So when they heard this, now the Jews had to be thinking, this is not good. This is really not good. If Peter is right, then we now, we who killed the Lord, we are the enemies of God now. He's the exalted king. He rules and reigns from heaven. God is going to, it says right here, crush us underneath his feet. We are doomed. We are in trouble. This revelation of Jesus being exalted and sitting at the right hand of God must have been terrifying to them. It must have shaken them to their core. By the way, did you notice there in verse 33 that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in one verse? Did you see that? Exalted to the right hand of God. Who's that? Jesus. The right hand of God. He has received from the Father, the promised Spirit. You see the three of them? The consistent teaching of the Bible is that God is one God who manifests himself, expresses himself through three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in our culture, 
A lot of people have been awakened to that biblical truth through a book, which has now become a movie, called The Shack. And last week I was on vacation, I went and saw the movie The Shack. And if you're interested, I hope you'll read my blog on that movie, but I haven't written it yet. So I need you to hold me to it, because I intend to write a blog post on this by the end of this week, so if you don't see it on our church website, hold me to it. Rebuke me, okay? Um, hopefully by Friday. I want to give you my thoughts on that. But back to Peter's sermon. He had their attention, for sure. I'm sure they were quiet. He had just skillfully, methodically, logically built a case proving beyond all reasonable doubt that their guilt of crucifying their Messiah, who in fact was Jesus. They had killed him, But God had raised him from the dead. Now he was ascended back up to his home in heaven. He was enthroned as king. He had his father's commitment to subjugate all of his enemies. And they realized that now included them. So they're sitting there listening to this. The evidence is irrefutable. The case is solid. Their sentence would be deserved. And then Peter gave his closing statement, the conclusion to his sermon, and it must have been devastating to them. I'll bet he raised his voice again. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel, all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Messiah. You know what it says their reaction was? It says it was like a dagger to their heart. Stabbed. That's what the word means. Stabbed in the heart. When the people heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Can you hear it? They they must have felt totally lost, totally condemned, covered in shame, hopeless, guilty. I mean, what do we do? God came to us. God came to us and we killed him. Now he's risen. There's not one shred of hope for us. It hit him like a ton of bricks. It was like having a coronary. Peter's bold gospel preaching stabbed him in the heart. They felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sinful rejection of Christ, right? And I could envision Peter at that point, if he'd been in a certain mindset, just saying, well, sorry, There's nothing you can do. You had your chance. In fact, you had the best opportunity anyone has ever had. You had firsthand exposure to Messiah. He lived among you, and you concluded what? That he was empowered by Beelzebub? That's brilliant. God came to you and you called him the devil. There's no hope for you. You're going to hell forever. Period. End of sermon. Drop the mic. Walk off. I think that's what they expected. And so what came next must have shocked them. Peter holds out an offer, a stunning, unexpected offer of grace from the very God they had murdered. Peter replied, verse 38, Repent. What shall we do, brothers? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's a reference to the Gentiles. You Jews, yeah, your kids and Gentiles. For all whom the Lord our God will call. There's divine sovereignty again. What is this? Well, it's called grace, right? Grace. And grace is a scandalous concept. It's beautiful. It's beautifully scandalous and scandalously beautiful. It's a gracious offer from the God they had snubbed to forgive them, to wipe their slate clean, to clear them of all the charges against them, a promise that they too, like all these other believers, could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just like Peter, just like the disciples had. Wow! If there's hope for the people who were responsible for killing Jesus Christ, there's hope for everybody. You see that? From guilty murderers to forgiven saints, spirit-filled saints of God, this is the offer of salvation, of deliverance from judgment, of rescue from the hell that they deserved. This is the gospel, the good news, that Christ-hating Jesus rejectors who had the living word living in front of them and reject him, that they can be saved? If they can be saved, you can be saved. Your friend can be saved. Your children can be saved. And what was the condition for receiving all this? Repent. Change your mind. Shift your loyalty. Switch your allegiance to Jesus. That's what repent means. Turn away from trusting in yourself to be right with God and put your full trust in Messiah and be baptized. Identify publicly as a Christian. Gladly proclaim your new allegiance to Jesus Christ no matter what it costs you. That's what baptism was and is and it's the natural First step for all who have truly repented, all who have become Christians. And you know what? On that day, after hearing this sermon, many people did this. Not everyone, but many. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them. So his sermon went on and on. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The culture is going to sweep you downstream into hell if you don't repent. Verse 41, and those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a good day. And the church was birthed out of a gospel sermon. There was mass conversion. The church started with a bang. Like I said, there could have been more than 10,000 people in that crowd and 3,000 of them said, yes, Jesus Those whom God had called accepted the gospel and believed it and they were born again. And then, in what must have been so super exciting for Peter and the disciples, they had to spread out all over Jerusalem to find every possible pool. Right? 3,000 people. So that these brand new believers could publicly be immersed in water and raised back up again just like their Lord had been receiving baptism, the badge of salvation. 
the mark of discipleship. And then they came together and set out on the exciting journey of learning what it would mean to follow Jesus Christ together as a body of believers. What a fresh, eager, excited, vibrant community that first congregation of Jesus followers must have been. And they were. And you need to come back next week so you can find out what they did. It's going to be great. How about for us here today? What's, what's in here for us? Well, there's a lot. <laughs> kind of reliving this in my mind and rehearsing Peter's sermon caused some desires to swell up in my spirit, some hopes for our church family, and just a few here. Thinking about this. Could I just say this? Let's strive to be a church that loves lost people, that loves people who are far from God, I mean, shouldn't we be that kind of a church who loves lost people, who welcomes messed up, broken people like we were and are? Let's, let's become the kind of church that, that's a safe place for all kinds of people to explore the dangerous message of the gospel safe place to explore the dangerous message of the gospel. I want to be that kind of church, don't you? Let's love people who are far from God. Let's not be so high-minded and feel superior and judgmental that we wouldn't welcome people whom God is calling. And then second, let's strive to be a church that loves the gospel and keeps Jesus front and center all the time. I mean, Peter stood up on the very first day of the church, the first Christian sermon, and the topic of his message was Jesus. He was a spirit-filled man, we know that. But the spirit didn't even preach about the spirit through him. The spirit preached about Jesus, which aligns with what Jesus said the spirit's mission would be to glorify him. Let's keep Jesus front and center. Our our message to the world is not, you'd better behave or God's going to zap you. That's not our message to the world. Our message to the world is, Behold, Jesus, the Lamb, who's taken care of your sins, who extends grace to everyone. I mean, the Christ killers were given grace and the opportunity to repent and be saved. You say, well, I've gotten drunk, or I've committed adultery, or I've abandoned the church. Okay, Okay, that's, that's not good, that's sinful, but you're not outside the reach of the glorious grace of Jesus. And then third, let's spread this good news to our neighbors and around the world. We would not want to just keep this all to ourselves, right? It's too good for that. This is the message that keeps compelling us to step out on faith and take risks to give our neighbors the opportunity to hear it. This is why we start new campuses. This is, this is the reason why we start new campuses, to spread this message, to love our neighbors, give them an opportunity to hear what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. That they might be saved and become part of the family of God, forever family of God. Because people need a family. People need a forever family family.